Hello and welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, I will be uh, finishing up my look at uh, William Wells Brown uh, with uh, the second half of My Southern Home, published in 1880. Uh, This is his second kind of personal narrative or memoir of sorts. Um, At times, it doesn't really read like that much of a memoir. We don't see that much of what he himself did. Um, He doesn't talk that much in the first person. Uh, He does, though, give an overview of the world that he grew up in and the world that he learned more about when he returned to the South, uh, especially during the era of Reconstruction. So the first half of the book focuses mostly on the culture and the life in slavery. I talked a little bit about that in the last episode. Um, It's a really great introduction, I think. I think, as I said last time, I think this is a great starting point for Brown. Uh, If you're interested in this writer, I think you can jump straight to this book, and you don't necessarily have to read the others uh, until later, because this has so much of the good stuff in the other books that's in the other books, and it adds to it, I think, a pretty riveting Uh, examination of Reconstruction, one of the most important periods uh, in American history to be studied. Um, It's it's still, I think, to a certain degree, part of flyover history. You know, I think, you know, a lot of teachers, if they get through the Civil War in that first semester, they're pretty proud of themselves. There's, of course, a lot of content to cover, you know, 1492 all the way to, you know, 1876. Um, But you know, it's it's in some ways more important to talk about than the Civil War, right? Because that was the the moment in which American history maybe could have gone a different way. And it, and it set up so much of the New South, its politics, its its ideology, uh, the establishment of a, of, of a culture and institutional life for free former slaves. It's really an important period to look at. And of course, it was such a tragically failed revolution. Um, so I think that's such a such an important period to study um, and it does sometimes get uh, quickly covered in a lot of I think even college survey courses although that may be changing um, as more people are aware of just how important this period is and sometimes if you look at kind of U.S. history as a whole it's part of that broader flyover history history of the later 19th century when there's not there's no major wars there's not that many memorable presidents uh, although you have the labor movement, the, all the social movements and the populists and the rise of industrialization and urbanization and, and, and that also such an important period to, 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 to look at, uh, mass immigration, etc. Um, but, you know, it sometimes gets, uh, gets ignored a little bit, right? So anyways, uh, this book is good to go to for just a brief look at, at Reconstruction. You're not going to learn a lot if you're already pretty well educated on what reconstruction life was like but i think it's a what's this is probably one of the first books to make this case right so much um, attention has been given to w.e.b du bois's black reconstruction in america uh, rightfully so it's a wonderful book 
It uh, was a counter-narrative to Southern apologist writing that tended to focus on Reconstruction as a period of, of corruption and, and you know, violation of the rights of, of white Southerners and, and all this foreign rule kind of idea, occupied foreign rule. Um, and then, of course, racists are able to build on that narrative and say, see, the problem was black people had political power during Reconstruction and we were right to take away from it because it was such a corrupt, failed uh, experiment. Well, of course, W.B. Du Bois breaks every part of that argument down pretty systematically. And I, I will note, I will point out that the Library of America has recently published a second volume of Du Bois's writing, which includes just that, just Black Reconstruction in America, uh, I guess, enshrining just how important it is as a work of, of literature uh, and history. But what I want to say here is, is Wells, uh, William Wells Brown gets to a lot of those points. Uh, I wish he would have written more about Reconstruction, and I wish... The ending of the book wouldn't have been so dominated by his kind of personal polemics about what black people should do. It's it's much um, less a kind of a study of history than than vignettes and, and snapshots of Reconstruction. But and then it ends with a pretty moralistic uh, take on black life in the South. And that's, as I said last time, it's, it's a little bit unfortunate. He does seem to be, you know, talking down to oppressed people and telling them like this the problem it's it's kind of on you and and it's that it's kind of like a very boomer kind of attitude because i don't know if you can transplant the word boomer but uh to this stage but it kind of feels that way you got this older person you know the generation of frederick Douglass or whatever even older i think uh, in brown's case but uh you know saying well now that you're free you know, the burdens on you to improve your life, right? So stay off the drink, pull up the pants, you know, stop listening to that, that music, etc. Anyways, I guess that's what you can expect to see. That said, though, I think this is a good book to, to read for an introduction to uh, William Wells Brown. And then later on, you can go back and, and check out his other books. So I, I guess I'm going to dispense with the chapter by chapter uh, reading of this. Uh, um, I guess the when you get to about the halfway point through this book where I left off last time um, you were mostly dealing with the culture and life of slavery the interactions between blacks and whites and I think it's the best part of the book in some ways um, such a solid recapitulation of, of Brown's perspective on these things um, then he gets into a lot about like emancipation so he starts with the Underground Railroad um, slave resistance escape how slaves escaped from the South, um, and then the experience of the Underground Railroad, including, you know, even some of the musical, the way music was used to help uh, teach people how to escape. And then this brings us into the rebellion, the War of the Rebellion and the Civil War, and how that led to the end of slavery, and then how that was experienced in the South. And I think Brown is right to, to say, like, the you know, that although slavery ended, the idea of a subservient black working class in the South was hard, was even harder to break, break down. Right. And of course, black people would be put in new forms of, of oppression, culminating Jim Crow, sharecropping, uh, crop debt systems, tenant farming, these kinds of things. Um, and he kind of addresses this a little bit 
in a section, chapter 15, he writes, The success of the slaveholders in controlling the affairs of the national government for a long series of years, furnishing a large majority of the presidents, speakers of the House of, Repres speakers of, the House of Representatives, foreign ministers, and molding the entire policy of the nation in favor of slaveholding, and the admitted fact that none could secure an office in the national government who were known to be opposed to the peculiar institution, made the Southerners feel themselves superior to the people of the free states. The feeling was often manifest by an outburst of impertinent language, which frequently showed itself on the pulpit, on the rostrum, and on the drawing room. All of, on all such occasions, the placing of the institution of slavery above liberty seemed to be the aim of his advocates. Um, and that's how he introduces this chapter, where he gets into some of the arguments, pro-slavery kind of rhetoric that he heard. Not really arguments, but the rhetoric. For instance, free society, we sicken of the name. This is a quote from some southern statesman. What is it but a conglomeration of greasy mechanics, filthy operators, small-fisted farmers, and moonstruck theorists? All the northern states, and especially the New England states, are devoid of society, filled for well-bred gentlemen. The prevailing class one meets with is that of the mechanics struggling to be genteel and small farmers who do their own drudgery and yet are hardly fit for association with a gentleman's body servant that is a slave. This is your free society. Um, and I think Brown shows how this these attitudes kind of feed into um, the post-war era, including uh, with the end of slavery among some blacks who who carried on this idea of, 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 of maintaining basically similar um, structures of cultural and economic authority. He shows, there's a chapter here where he shows kind of the bewilderment of, of, of some slaves on a plantation after the end of, of slavery. But that's just like some of, he doesn't say that that's the, necessarily the majority opinion or the majority approach to it. Uh, instead, he focuses much more on the mobility of black people. And this is an important theme in the study of Reconstruction. If you pick up a book on Reconstruction today, you'll see a lot of chapters and uh, passages about black people leaving the plantation they were kind of raised on or worked on to another one, uh, maybe moving to the cities, eventually moving to the north. He kind of does foreshadow the Great Migration in this book a little bit. That happens during World War I, of course. Or moving west. Quote, immediately after the rebellion ceased, the freedmen throughout the South, desiring no doubt to be fully satisfied that they were actually free of and their own of their own free and their own masters. They could go where they pleased, left their house in the, in the country, and took up their abode in cities and towns. This, as a matter of course, threw them out of business, and large numbers could be seen idly lolling on the streets in the courthouses, townhouses, or other country buildings, or listlessly wandering through the streets. That they were able to do this seemed to them positive, evident that they were really free. It was no longer, however, it was not long, however, before they were, began to discover that they could not live without work and that the only labor that they understood was on the country, on the plantation. Consequently, they returned to the farms in many instances to their former masters. Yet the old love of visiting the cities and towns remained, and they became habituated to leaving their work on Saturdays and going to the place near to, to them. This caused Saturday to be called N-word Day in most of the southern states. End quote. So I guess it's kind of complicated. He's, he's, he is presenting this attitude about work in a complicated way. I'm, of course, on the side of the people who just opt out. I'm kind of with Melville. Uh, I prefer not to. Quit your job if you want. Uh, don't work. It's not worth it. It's not worth uh, your identity and your self-respect to keep a job. Um, of course, we live in capitalism. You know, when people need income. So it's not to begrudge anyone who does work, but it's uh, 
kudos to those who find ways of living outside uh, the normal relationships of, of, of labor and capital. And of course, all honor to people who, who find their, their Saturdays and, and are able to create a space for their own happiness outside of the space of work. Uh, that's becoming more and more difficult. Although I think this pandemic is, is challenging uh, some things and changing people's attitudes about work in really, really interesting ways. And we'll see how all that pans out in the, the coming months and years. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is once he gets into the stuff on Reconstruction, I think there's some really, really interesting chapters. But um, you actually saw it in that passage I just read where Brown also begins to uh, become a bit of a moralist, like the language he uses here. Um, you know, listlessly, what is that what the word he used? Lolling about the steps of the courthouse, listlessly wandering through the streets. You can tell he's not saying slaves were wrong to try to escape their former masters in, you know, in these new labor arrangements that were being formed. But he also, you know, is a bit bothered by this kind of idleness, right? And I think for the moralist, so often it comes down to work, right? Like it's the idle are the most uh, criticized by the by uh, the these kind of moralists who want to focus on kind of uplift and self-help and all that. Um, you know, labor becomes this moral necessity, and it certainly was seen that way for many years in America. It's part of the whole kind of work ethic of that's dominated the United States, and Brown has it. That's the point I'm trying to make. Brown has this belief in the work ethic. Um, and I don't think he fully understands these people who were lolling about the courthouse in the cities, uh, that maybe they were f engaged in a type of resistance. And the evidence of this is in this own book, because he is very quick to point out that a response, I think it's in this chapter, uh, that a response to this greater mobility and day-to-day -day freedom of African-Americans after the end of slavery was the imposition of the black codes right which some to some degree of them were in place for free blacks and i think he talks about that too here somewhere he actually has an interesting chapter on the free blacks of the south saying that their situation was you know as bad or in some cases worse than than slaves and they because you know the black codes was part of that but after slavery ended the black codes remained and this of course contributes to the passage of the 14th amendment and all that stuff you learned and hopefully uh, you learned in history class if unless your teacher you know flew over that section it's in the last five six chapters of this book the last really 50 pages of it i suppose um where actually it's the whole last 10 chapters to be honest uh the last 50 pages are a little bit longer than just the last few pages the last 50 pages but it's in the last section of this book that he really can't escape this constant moralism. And it's always under the surface or sometimes, especially in the last final chapters, the last two, it's right on the surface. Um, uh, listen to this. Uh, he's talking about the old elite and he's saying that they still believe they had the cultural power and economic uh, power and political power. And in some cases, they certainly did by 1880 after uh, Republican governments were broken down. Quote, the blacks felt their importance, saw their own power in national politics, were interviewed by obsequious and cringing white men from the North, men, many of them far inferior morally to the Negro. 
Two-faced, second-class white men of the South, few in number, it is true, hung like leeches upon the blacks. Among the latter was a respectable um, proportion of free men, free before the rebellion. They were comparatively well-educated. To these and to the better class of freemen, the country was to look for solid work. In the different state legislatures, a great battle was to be fought, and to these the interests of the South settled. All of these legislatures were composed mainly of colored men. Uh, so he's talking about like the Republican governments, right? But here's what he says. Colored men went to the legislature somewhat as children go for the first time to a Sabbath school. They sat and waited to see the show. Many of them have been elected by constituencies of which not more than 10 in 100 could read the ballots they deposited. And a large number of these representatives could not write their own names. This was not their fault. Their want of education was attributed to the system of slavery, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Obviously, right? So he's not blaming them necessarily, but his emphasis is on, like, we need to improve the moral and intellectual character of, of uh, blacks in the South. Um, and also improve kind of their, particularly not just education, but their moral character, right? Stop drinking, go to work, lift yourself up. At one point he even says, like, if you have a choice between learning, like, the liberal arts, essentially, or a craft, learn a craft that will pay, give you a paycheck and that will give you kind of meaning in life more so than you know taking one of those you know going into the lofty pursuits of the humanities i got triggered by that by the way other kind of moral things he focuses on are things like shopping he talks about how you know black women he actually targets black women directly saying they spend too much of their income on fancy clothes and you'll see uh Blacks with low income, but walking around with really high class, high end clothing that they bought in the cities and things like that. And he's like, don't do that. That's not the best use of your money. Um, he talks about uh, the religious institutions as as being better, the, the black religious institutions as being better than what the whites were doing. But he still has his criticisms of them, calling them uh well, he says this, the moral and social degradation of the colored population of the Southern States is attributable to two main causes, their mode of living and their religion. So both of these he's kind of targeting not to whites, but to blacks themselves. So he's not quite like a Booker T. Washington person because he, he doesn't think blacks should necessarily cooperate fully with whites. He thinks blacks need to improve their own um, social community build their own community do like some kind of nation building so he's more of a nationalist in this way he, at one point he says and i don't know how much of this is based on truth or fact he says you know the germans are prosperous because no german immigrant would pass by a german store and not patronize them before patronizing you know uh, an anglo store he says same thing with the irish he talks about the jews and how they're more willing to do business with uh people from other groups but still maintain their strong cultural identity but he says black people don't have that black people are willing to give their money to white businesses to uh, lease uh, white owned land and even send their kids to schools with white teachers he says this is the problem we don't have a strong enough kind of nation or, or group identity and group institutions um, but at the same time he criticizes those institutions that they do have um, such as the church so he's a little bit, uh, I think, he he does come off a bit like a boomer, I guess, uh, in his kind of lecturing to younger people and 
And by this point, lecturing to people who don't have that much of a memory of slavery in some cases, people who grew up entirely, uh, or at least coming to age, entirely after 65, or at least were only young children during that, right? And, and so what's his solution? Well, education, uh, stop drinking, moral reform, uh, economic cooperation and community and solidarity. Uh, so basically helping each other kind of a it's, it's a very black nationalist argument um, and and that and and those kinds of uplift so that's that's his his solution now you know this isn't a text that's going to be compared alongside Booker T Washington and, and W.B. Du Bois you know great thinkers of this post-slavery era uh, like Douglas Brown is like between the two uh, right so growing up in this period where whites and blacks were really really intertwined right were closely connected and where it was all one-sided in terms of power and domination right and you understand that generation kind of saying like at this point just leave us alone and let us kind of build our own communities again right um but you can understand the debate later uh developing in new ways right Th that it's not about kind of creating that cultural autonomy but seeing ourselves as part of a nation right part of a broader nation the Du Bois what Du Bois would say for instance um, you know with the veil the double consciousness you know that I'm both separate to and part of this this country now Brown certainly will talk about black people as owners of America and, and inheritors of it through labor and through their suffering and, and building the country um, that's been a long-standing argument of his but he's not fully come to terms I think with with the debates that are going to take place you know 20 years after his death in the early 20th century um, so you know I'm not sure if he had lived longer if he had been privy to those debates what kind of contribution he would have made to those those discussions um, but anyways he's he kind of falls back on moral uplift as the solution particularly drink he's really really hard on drink and uh, then he starts talking about emigration uh, as possible solution to to places but he thinks uh, you know that necessarily won't solve the problem it will you're basically sapping the south of its talent if you do that so education building homesteads work crafts all those kinds of things uh, Developing a craft, developing a trade, if you will. That's what his focus is on. So that said, I think this is a really solid book, and I, and I, it's it's good to be, I think, exposed to this, you know, this struggle he's had, he's having, uh, understanding the changes that are going on in the South from '65 to to '80 when this was written. And that's kind of some of the more memorable parts of the book, even though it does fall back on this this kind of uh, ideology of moral reform and, and uplift and self-help and, and yeah, basically moral reform. But at the same time, you know, the stuff about slavery is also really, really good here. Um, uh, I think here there's other things in this book that might be a bit troubling to people. For instance, in The Black Man, that set of little vignettes and biographies that he wrote uh, in 1862 where his argument was really black people are ready for self-rule and have uh 
as much of a history of intellectual greatness and achievement as do White. Um, he talks a lot about uh, Haiti, and it, most of the major Haitian politicians show up there prominently. And he says, see, here's our evidence of black greatness. You see it in Haiti. You see it in Jamaica, but mostly in Haiti. That's what he focuses on. But here he actually calls out Haiti, saying there hasn't really been any great leaders in Haiti since since Rochambeau left or something. So, so basically saying just Toussaint, Louverture, maybe Dessalines. After that generation, there isn't um, great black leaders in, in Haiti. And you can kind of see a changing perspective, maybe a little more frustration and anxiety over the future of, of blacks in America. So anyways, I guess that's, that's all I'm going to say about this book. Um, I think it's good, though. I think it's a, it's, it's a nice read. And it was really helped by having a really great audio book reading by, by James K. White. Um, my, one of my favorite, if not my, I think he is my favorite uh, LibriVox contributor right now. And he definitely deserves some some uh, serious paid work in the audiobook market. Anyways, uh, I guess that's it. Brown, uh, I think I was really excited to jump into William Wells Brown. Uh, he wasn't what I expected, I, th I think. I didn't know what to expect, really, because I haven't really been exposed too much to his ideas and his philosophy and his, his writings. So it was all kind of new to me. And so I, I, I learned a lot uh, reading this. Um, even though like slavery is a topic I know a lot about and the history of the South is something I know a lot about, but, uh, this guy's contribution, his life, his, his, his perspectives. I learned a lot about it. So I think this is a nice, it's a good collection. So I've been debating, uh, what to do next in my coming series. Um, I think I'm going to take like a, a week and a half just to finish the Lovecraft recordings before getting back into library of America. But that I have enough episodes in the can at this point that that it probably won't be a mean another break in in, in uploading episodes. Um, I pretty I'm kind of gravitating to Nathaniel West because I, I actually went to a used bookstore and I was able to get like six Library of America books for each for like four dollars ones I haven't had before. So I was really really super excited to get those. Uh, one thankfully was the other volume of the Richard White right. Uh, collection that's two volumes so i could do richard bright if i wanted um but there's a period that i always kind of want to go back to and that's like the early 20th century um and so nathaniel west is is really kind of drawing me in i also have a lot of the noir books i have ross mcdonald um wendell berry's writings that's later 20th century but i, I think i want to go back to kind of where i was early in this podcast doing a lot of work on the turn of the century. Nathaniel West is a little bit later, but he's also cool because he's like that early American modernist and doing weird stuff, surrealist things, anti-literature almost. Um, so it'll be a different kind of uh, thing. And it's also works I never read before and, and didn't, don't know that much about. So that's what I think I'm going to do. I think I'm going to jump in and do this. Nathaniel West died really young. Of course, he died like when he was like 30 or so in a car wreck. So he didn't leave that much behind, so it's it's nice. We can kind of look at his almost complete works. He also did like screenplays and plays and stuff like that. So it's a mix of genres, but four novels and is the heart of it. So I think that's what I'm going to do. Chances are what you'll see ne uploaded next is is uh, the, uh, my beginning of my look at the works of, of Nathaniel West. So anyways, if you have any final thoughts about William Wells Brown, 
let me know what they are. Um, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Well, you won't be worried when, when the sun go down. When the sun go down. You'll never be worried when, when the sun go down. When the sun go down. Oh, I, 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 oh